Hello there and welcome to episode 75 of the Hawthorns Debate Club. My name is Jamie Clay and I'm joined once a week by a couple of gentlemen to have a few conversations and discussions about West Bromwich Albion Footballing Club. So let me start by saying a warm hello to my good friend Alexander Collins. Hello. And hello to my little brother Joseph Clay. Hello. So, believe it or not, we are already 10% of the way into the new season. The first 10 metres out of the block of the race that will run a further 90 metres, if my maths is correct there. And things are not looking too bad at all, really. Perhaps a little bit better than some, if not all, anticipated. We are four games in which is above the threshold for 10%. We have calculated that pre-pod. Uh, and Albion are flirting with the playoffs in seventh position. It's seven points from four games. Yeah, two I wins. have to say, so I think we're, it's, it's 8.62%, I think. You're, mate, you're very right to correct me. And the reality of football and mathematics is that you don't necessarily have to be good at one to be good at the other. And thank you there, Alex, for stepping in from your research corner but it's seven points is that correct two points no three points for a win times two a draw which is one point and a loss so seven points from four games and perhaps the more important thing in this podcast is that on the horizon at the end of this week is the transfer deadline day it is just a few sleeps away like the countdown to Christmas, there are three sleeps till deadline day, maybe four. So you've got Tuesday, you've got tonight, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. So Thursday. three nights, yeah. Three sleeps away. Um, and I guess on this part, we're going to perhaps talk a little bit about the Middlesbrough game and the season thus far, but lean a little bit into what the the looming transfer window actually means to us. But before we get to all of our hearty discussion and glowing example of mathematic endeavour, as we've already kind of proven ourselves so far on the podcast, let me say a huge thank you for downloading and listening to the podcast, whether you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the podcast platform of your choice. We're really grateful. We're always pleased to do the podcast when we can and we try and be as regular as we can. And so whenever you listen to it, we're just super grateful. If you could do us the wonderful favor of sharing the podcast via word of mouth or via your social media or whatever it looks like, or just really obnoxiously refuse to speak to people until they've listen to your recommendations about football podcasts and they have subscribed to us etc uh, and then move on from there um, in your relationship with them knowing that it is deeper because you are bonded over the debate club but we do appreciate it so if you can share it please do that leave us a like do all the bits and pieces go and check us out on youtube and and all of the other bits and pieces, reviews, etc. We do appreciate every single one of them. Right, now that all of the spiel is out of the way, we're going to, a few things to talk about today, but we're going to start off with a brief discussion with the Middlesbrough game. Not necessarily going to go into too much detail about the game itself, but more or less talk about some of the, the talking points emerging from the Middlesbrough game that will shape perhaps where Albion are headed going forward into September and deadline day, I guess there's a the way they the Middlesbrough game and some of the storylines emerging from that 
perhaps might indicate some gaps that we need to fill before deadline day or on deadline day at the least. It obviously finished 4-2. Again, another game where we looked to be relatively in control before allowing a, a team to kind of creep back into it at the Hawthorns. It finished 4-2. Um, the fourth goal being Sarmiento as the six minutes of stoppage time was announced in the crowd. I don't think the the echo from the speakers had quite dulled um, from when Sarmiento's goal actually went in. And Alex, what was your your riddle to my children about echoes? I know, yep. So what's a reflection, but you can't see it? And that was the halftime entertainment in the Woodman Corner as my children spent all 15 minutes trying to guess what Alex was, the cryptic riddle sphinx that he is. I created monsters, didn't I, Jamie? Which I, I apologise for. That's okay, mate. They are they are smarter and wiser for having seats next to you. But it finished 4-2. We had some wonderful goals to view. Kipre scored what everyone else is describing as like a striker's half-volley finish from another Darnell Furlong throw-in. We saw, I guess, a goal scored by John Swift that kind of was the John Swift that a lot of us imagined we were getting. Someone who was going to pick up the ball, dribble at defenders and knock goals in from 20-odd yards out. The third goal, Brandon Thomas-Sante capitalises on a poor back pass. Um, First touch isn't great. Second touch is really good. And the third touch is a goal. And the fourth goal was Jeremy Sarmiento's first for the club where he kind of settled all of the nerves that had been, well, there was a lot of nervous fans in that crowd for about 30 or 40 minutes in that second half. I guess the starting point here is it's it's been well documented that we seem very capable of scoring goals and it's going to be necessary that we do score a lot of goals this season because we seem incapable of limiting teams from scoring two, uh, one or two goals at least. And every time we're going to pick up points this season, it looks like we're going to have to be uh, in a rich vein of goal scoring form. Does it worry you? the volume of goals were conceded, in particular to at home, we've had two goals conceded. What do you think? Is it a, a system thing? Is it a defensive mistakes? Where where do you think it's going wrong for us? We'll start with you, Joe, if that's okay. Yeah, I think it's a, a few things to me. I think there's some anxiety from last season and some of those players know that we failed under Steve Bruce the season before and last season we were nearly there. We still were, we failed, so I think there's a bit of anxiety and um, on the players. And obviously when you're at home and uh, there's fans getting on your back, it's obviously going to absorb that. But I also think there's that this season we are attacking a lot better than last season, so gaps are going to appear in the second half when you've got a small squad bit of fatigue uh, settling in and we're going to concede yeah we should be better but we have got a small squad I don't think uh, the three centre-backs are out there don't think maybe Carl Bartley's the only one who can come in there quite comfortably probably not quite comfortably anyway he's a different type of uh, centre-back but we haven't got the uh, players to you know replace them so they're playing every game at the moment and I think that is kind of the thing, the fatigue around that. And Carlos Corbran is trying to tinker with this left-back 
no, well, left mid, left wing back, and right wing, uh, mid, right wing back, uh, Furlong and Townsend, and also now Matty Phillips. So I think there's a bit of that still going on, gelling around that. So I don't think it's anything to be wary about. We're still winning in these uh, positions, and that's the manager thing you need to take out of it. Uh, I think it can only get better uh, after the transfer window and more gelling. I think we'll some of those will go. You know, we'll, we'll get it down to one, and maybe get a clean sheet in the future at some point. You know, yeah, you certainly can see the mental fragility, especially when one goal goes in. It seems to be a couple of instances this season where straight from us scoring, another team has capitalised and scored one back straight away. There does seem to be definitely, in my opinion, some mental fragility. Obviously, we lost a huge player in Dara O'Shea, Alex, in the in the summer. Is it maybe as simple as this is was always likely to be on the cards when you lose a player of that kind of significance to the club that we were always going to concede more goals this season? Do you think it's that simple or is there is it is there more to it? Yeah, there's, there's more to it. I don't think things like this are ever black and white. Um, you know, I think there are a number of things at play. But for, for me, like the, the, the key three things are, um, you know, it's the substitutions. Um, not saying it's wrong to make the substitutions. Like Joe mentioned, I think fatigue comes into it. And due to our size of our squad, I think it's important that key players are rested and, and kept fit for as long as that they can be. Um, I also think in the last few games we've gone ahead so the other teams have kind of up their ante um so that's always going to put more pressure on the on, on our defense um you know and i, I think a joy in kipre um, perhaps peters as well um you know come around the 60th minute mark they do seem a bit more fatigued and perhaps lose a bit of concentration like their control doesn't seem to be as good as it is earlier in the games um, so I think as as the match fitness improves, um, I think that will improve that situation. Um, but I do think we do we could probably do with one another defender uh, before the deadline day. Um, but but yeah, I think there are a number of things at play. I don't think it's just the one thing, and that being Daro Shea leaving. Yeah, I think there's one, I suppose the other angle of it is, is that we're scoring enough goals at the moment to overcome the fact that we're we're kind of conceding frequently, I guess. And I guess not just conceding in terms of the ball being in the back of the net, but conceding fairly high value chances. Middlesbrough obviously had a one chance in the first half where they fired just over the bar in the second half. They hit the inside of the post, didn't they? So I think... There was probably enough chances in that game for Middlesbrough to get something out of it. In fact, I think if you look at the XG stats, I think ours was about 0.6 and theirs was two point something. So in terms of the XG, it was very, very generously in their favour. And obviously we massively outperformed our XG because of the quality of the finishes and so on. But I think it's encouraging that we are able to score fairly not necessarily just from set pieces either in this game we were able to fashion chances and score really quality goals and it moves us on to our our next point and it's kind of that there's certain players in the squad and we spoke about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago that are definitely rewriting the narratives 
around themselves at the moment presently there's a couple that i want to really start out because they are like so important to what we're doing at the moment and perhaps the number one uh, character and he, and he was very important when corbin started and that was matty phillips um, we'll talk about Cedric Kipre in a few moments, who was a man of the match performance. He was also in the EFL team of the week. But Matt Phillips on the left wing was so impressive during this game, um, both defensively and attacking it, caused problems all through the game. He caused in their right back, I mean, eventually, obviously, he was sent off because of the problems, but he was creating chances, getting into dangerous positions, constantly a threat. He had a few shots where it just whistled past the post. I think it's clear to me we see the best of Matt Phillips when he is out wide on the left. And obviously the experiment of playing through the middle um, didn't quite work against Swansea at home. How impressed have you been with Matt Phillips and and his spell under Corbin? I think he, for me, we need to wrap him in a bit of cotton of wool because <laughs> yeah, he's so, so good uh, this season. And at the start of last season, but we're seeing it this season. I think he's literally, it's like he's in his prime of his uh, career this season. He's, I love him on the left because he's like an inverted winger. He always comes in, so he invites Swift into the, uh, him and Swift were on the ball quite a lot around that uh, Matty Phillips was, like passing it into linking it with uh, BTA as well. And I think it really, really helps us bring the players up into play and help us attack. We're not always doing that from what we get on Jed Wallace's wing is a cross mainly, or maybe a more direct run. I think Matty Phillips creates a lot more and creates a lot more for other people and more spaces for our team to basically have an attempt on goal at least. So I'm just so impressed with him because he's so versatile as well. Mm -hmm. Like That's the problem with him. He, could get overplayed a lot and he could have an injury and I think Corbran realises that as he does take him off he just he, he's playing man the match games every game at the moment mm. and it's you know it's quite scary that he's one of our oldest servants and we're still relying on those type of players um, and he's injury prone so I just hopefully he stays fit for the majority of the season and he keeps playing at this high calibre because it's just, I haven't seen him play this well. I think he played quite well under Allardyce for his spell, uh, around that spell uh, when he came in. He just, he's working, I don't know, I just, I, every time he gets on the ball, he's, it feels like we've got an attack and people are standing up in the, in the, uh, in the stadium. You know, it's, it's just edge of the seat stuff with Matty Phillips. I'm really excited about him this season. Like yeah, a new signing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem, like you said, is for all of the the, the positives and the, the dribbling and the directness. And, and like you say, he's not one dimension in the fact that he's just going to get his head down and run down the wing every time. There's definitely more to it. And it's his ability to score kind of important goals. He's, he seems to have like that knack for turning up in the right position. And if it's not him scoring the goals, generating space or just... It's, it, I love having a player that defenders are scared of is he going to go past me? He's physically stronger than me. He's got so much going for him. It's just that if that always hangs over Matty Phillips, isn't it? If he can stay fit, if his confidence can remain high. So we just hope really he he can keep going. 
there's other players that I quickly want to mention. Jed Wallace has come under a fair amount of stick over the past few weeks. Mr. Millwall, um, as it, as he was, he used to be known in a former life. And I guess we perhaps in the last six months or so, perhaps we haven't seen the best of Jed Wallace. He came and just absolutely set the ground alight. Everything he did, we all we absolutely adored him. He, he's blood and thunder, heart on his sleeve, bleeding blue and white kind of guy. And and when he's got paint on his boots because he's such a classic winger, but then for him to go to that to kind of a, I don't want to say a spectator, but definitely not as influential in games, a bit more of a passenger, uh, doesn't win many aerial duels. And suddenly you start to question well, what does he bring really but having said all that I was quite impressed with Wallace against Middlesbrough it seemed to be a little bit of a glimpse of the old Wallace taking up some really dangerous positions Alex what did you make of Jed's performance super captain Jed in this game I think he turns up the volume um like with his performances um you know it was the first game in a long time that I thought you know he's he's really trying and you know he's making those runs like he's scared, like you said Jamie's a, like like Phillips is a scary defend a scary attacker you know if you were a defender with playing against him and his pace and his trickery you know I think that would put you know uh, it would shiver your timbers um, so you know I think um, you know he, he looked quite exciting um, against Middlesbrough and hopefully you know that we've got. There's more of him to come uh, for, the, for the rest of the season. And I think he complements Phillips very well. Um, you know, I think Phillips's face should be next to the word form in, diction- in the dictionary. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I think he, he he's, he's such a form player, it's crazy. Um, but if he can sort of make, be more consistent and, you know, scave off injury and, you know, keep, keep at it for a prolonged period, even if it means that he has to, you know, turn himself down slightly... Um, I think it's exciting times, really, to have them pair on the wings. Yeah, I think. Sorry, Joe. Please, you. Yeah, I just, I just think people need to lay up a little bit on Jed Wallace. He played forty-six games last season. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't have many bad games in that season. To be fair, the last part of the season, when you know fatigue and there was probably no chance that we were playoffs. I think people took the uh, pedal off the uh, gas. Pedal off the gas. Put off the gas. Uh, so I think he's going to have some bad games, and he's you know he's only had a couple of bad games this, this start of the season. Like mm-hmm. you said, he played better against Middlesbrough, and hopefully he's up and going from there. And I think, like Alex says, you need at the start of the game. I think you need Jed Wallace on. You can't have someone like Sarmiento on, who's not going to track back as much. Mm-hmm. Maybe leave spaces for their uh, attacking uh, fullbacks or whatever the wing backs. I think Jed Wallace is kind of a sensible player to start for the first 45 minutes to 60 minutes. And he's going to get you a goal. He's going to assist your goals through the season. That is going to come with a Jed Wallace. I think you get, what was the stat that was going around between him and John Swift in the past, I don't know, half a decade or more. They've created a thousand chances in the championship between them or something wild. But I think with Jed, what I noticed was he wasn't just 
pinned out to the right wing in this game. He was definitely drifting into central positions. He was doing overlapping runs with Thomas Asante. And it was almost like we had two number 10s rather than a number 10 and number nine. And they were both interchanging, really developing an understanding of each other. And that's that's more exciting to me than just having a, a like a touchline hugging winger who's going to play the ball across the box for the defenders to just sweep up. So I'm really impressed with that. And I think a special mention to Sarmiento, obviously, he's a wild card. I absolutely love this guy. He is exciting. He doesn't do everything that perhaps we need him to do, as you rightly point out at the moment, Joe. Some of his pressing feels a little bit going through the motions. It feels a little bit half-hearted. But, gosh, when he's got the ball at his feet, you can... It's that short socks thing that you were speaking about last week, Joe. It is so true that he's looking to make something happen. Um, and obviously he got his goal and, and well-deserved. Let me just say now, before we come on to this next player, there's probably no one in the Albion squad that's rewrote the narrative around themselves as much as this guy has done since the start of the season. And that's Cedric Kipre. Obviously, after the Blackburn game, People have put the for sale sign on his back, ready to drive him down to South Wales. Everyone was frustrated by the errors. Cardiff fans obviously absolutely adored this guy last season, one of the most impressive defensive records in the bottom half of the league. Um, he was obviously a key part of that. And now, fast forward, what, three weeks, and people, everyone's suddenly in love with Cedric Kipre. Uh, not a... I guess he's not a kind of a no-nonsense defender. He's definitely got a little bit more guile and something a little bit more spicy about him, a bit more of a ball-playing. Um, in fact, both of them, him and Semi Ajayi, big shout-out. Some of the cross-field passing from Semi Ajayi from the right centre-back position to the left wing were absolutely uh, superb against um, Middlesbrough, causing them all kinds of problems. In fact, Matty Phillips benefited from some of the beautiful passing from Semi Ajayi. But let's stick on point with Cedric Kipre. Has he impressed you? And, and, and where do you think he stands now? Is he just a, a, a first-team starter for the season? Or where do you go? Yeah, I've, I, he's impressed me. Um, he's really picked up his form. I think that goes with time with Jelin. And you've got to remember, he's only come back into this squad. He's like a new signing. He came at the start of the uh, pre-season. He'd been out of a different squad. Not really been... In, he's been in and around the Albion when he's been here. So it's like a new signing. So he's going to have to gel with the players. Um, you could see the delight on everybody's face when he scored that goal. Everyone was around him. And I know that's your celebration, but you could just see all the delight that, that he scored. It took it really well. But for me, he's just, I don't know, he's... Like I said, it looks like he's playing with no, no boots on with his uh, when he's playing at home. And I just like it. He just seems to be kind of calm on the ball. Uh, he still seems a bit uh, like he's a bit turns quite slowly for me. But there's no nothing about it. Corbran wants him there. He's adamant that he wants him there. Maybe if he had all the money in the world, he probably wouldn't be there. But with the, the money we've got and the players we've got as centre-backs, he's the, the centre of the centre-backs, isn't he? So he's there. And he's the one ordering them around. So I've got no problems with it. He's going to make mistakes. 
hopefully this gives him the confidence and gives the crowd the confidence not to get on his back straight mm-hmm. away once he does make a mistake because they are going to make mistakes in individual areas. You know, Semi Ajayi nearly made one in the start, uh, first half. You know, he turned on the ball and he got it pinched off him. I can't see many people going as bad at Semi Ajayi if that was Kipra. So I think mm-hmm. people need to... I've, I've laid it into Kipra. You know, I'm going to give him the time now because he's showing that he can. He has got quality and hopefully that quality shines through the season. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And let's... Talk about the defence a little bit more, Alex. Obviously, we, we seem to be pretty resolutely sat in this back three system now. It seems to really suit us. Corbin, obviously, adamant to play out from the back, even though perhaps slightly more error-prone defenders, etc. Do you think it, it, it's kind of the system that suits these three players and that's why we suddenly look a little bit better or is it just kind of the individual themselves have turned it up a little bit? Yeah, I think they're like three musketeers, aren't they? The, I think they all complement each other very well. Um, I mean, uh, I put it in the chat, but I think Ajayi's a bit like a sports car, where he's fast, but he's a bit dangerous um, if, if you know if you don't control it. And then you've got Kipre, who I think is the classic Rolls Royce of a defender. You know, he's very classy, but I suppose the danger is you can become a bit too relaxed. Um, and then Eric Paters, um, I think he's like a reliable like a Land Rover or something like that um, but you know he probably hasn't got too long left on his uh, on, you know on, in his career I don't think you know maybe two years max um, but yeah I think they, they do complement each other very well um, but I do think we could do with one extra just in case and I, I think we should give a mention as well to Yakuslu and Malumbi shielding uh, the back three because I think they do a tremendous job as well like we always say that Yakuslu is like a swan among ducks and I think he does bring that calm um, you know, and that composure, giving them a bit more time um, and sort of trust when they're passing the ball into midfield, mm-hmm. which I think is important. That's definitely improved, noticeably improved, this playing out from the back. I know it creates so much anxiety in the crowd and everyone's saying pump it long. For me, the risk of them playing it around the back, and I can appreciate it, they do sometimes it gets stuck under their foot or they dwell on it perhaps a little bit longer, but it's definitely getting better. You can see that. And just firing it up to Brandon Thomas Asante for all of his effort and endeavor, it is almost impossible for him to out jump these six foot four center backs that that's their bread and butter. And for me, I'm, I'm kind of pleased that Corbin isn't giving up on the philosophy and he's just, pursuing it and like you said Yukushlu and Malumbi seem to be better at coming to receive the ball their Palmer's distribution to the the wing backs is is getting more and more accomplished um final little remark on this because uh, I just want to say this there is nothing more exciting in a game of football at the Hawthorns for me than when Semi Ajayi picks up the ball and starts marauding forwards that spells imminent danger for oppositions because nobody ever tracks with him they always just let him go forward and i think this is uh, this is going to sound total hyperbole now i don't know if there's a better crosser of the ball at the albion than semi Jai when he's running at full speed the balls he puts into the box are absolutely devastating now 
whether we've got the players to capitalise on them or not, they're always one of those ones. The corridor of uncertainty, he hits it every time. And so when he picks up the ball and gets going, and you just see Darnell Furlong drop back into the into the centre, that kind of right centre-back position, and everyone shifts across, so he's competent and capable of doing it. Even Malumbi dropped back in one situation. He's such a weapon with his pace and his ability to get forward that I, I hope Corbin keeps using that because I thought at home last season when we were on that what 11-game run, that was one of the features of that that was always there. Shemi Ajayi picking up the ball and drifting forward rather than trying to play our way forward, just progressing it through dribbling. Um, and one final thing about Shemi Ajayi that me and Alex both noticed in the game, when the ball was played over the top, and how that forward didn't even bother chasing it um, because Shemi Ajayi was just just like a gazelle, elegantly just increasing the gap between himself and the player. And the, the Middlesbrough forward didn't even bother running for the ball. And that was just such a, what an amazing asset that is that our centre-backs are, are starting to look like. There's definitely weaknesses, but they're starting to look more and more like they could in the future be real elements of strength. We've spoken a fair bit about that game there, perhaps a little bit more than we intended to, but it's all good because you're getting your values worth at the your value at the Hawthorns at the moment. Six goals, ascending off, definitely ascending off. No two ways about it. All agreed. Yeah, good. Um, yep. There was a penalty. You've you've had it all in that game. There was all the threat of a late drama, but we got through it all unscathed. The big question, I guess, that's emerging from this is Corbyn's in-game management. We seem to be in total control of games, like at Swansea, um, and Corbyn makes some changes. I think the main one is bringing Yukushlu off, and all of a sudden we look very, very shaky at the back. We've obviously praised Corbyn for his whole time here, but some of his in-game management decisions do seem to lead to some of these frailties that everyone's noticing. What what have you made of the in-game stuff? Obviously, it's quite uh, damning that, you know, in the last two home games, that when he's made these in-game management, we've conceded uh, a couple of goals. But for me, it goes back on all the discussion points we've just had. It's the lack of depth uh, of our squad. I think he's putting on players that he doesn't really trust. So the likes of Chalaba, he wouldn't have tried to sell him before if he trusted him fully. Um, I think Mauer is just a player there. If we could sell him, probably we would sell him. We could get some money for him. So I think there's that thing. Uh, and we've got so many games this season where if we're going to start with that, you know, the, the major starting lineup, what we start with every week, um, they ain't going to last every game, so he's going to have to make changes. And I think that 60-minute mark, when he does make changes, he likes to do it, and he has to do it because we don't want injuries, especially at this point, uh, you know, to the Matty Phillips, to your Jed Wallaces, to your Malumbis, to your OK, your Kushlers. Everybody would be going at him if they didn't, you know, like, oh, your Kushlers too fatigued, goes and gets an injury. So I think he has to do it at the moment. And when you're winning 3-0, you think... Your team's gonna, you know, win that game. So he puts on some of the players he doesn't trust as much or doesn't see starting. So I just think he he has to make some substitutions, and they're the players who are on the bench. 
So <laughs> that's it, isn't it, really? I, that's my opinion. I don't like it that we concede, but they're the players we've got on the bench. He has to do it. Yeah, you kind of have to keep them happy as well and give them game time, uh, give them a chance to impress uh, these folk on the bench. So I don't blame Corbin one bit. Uh, totally agree with Joe. Yeah, it definitely was when you, I think I was, for some reason, I've never done this before, but I went on BBC Sport website and was looking through the comments uh, on the article, the match report, and so many people, people, I've done it again, people, so many people this week were saying that it all went wrong after Yukushu come off. Why is, I can't understand why Corbin's taking Yukushu off. And I appreciate that a lot of the solidity and the shape does disappear out the middle. You've got very different players coming. I know Shalaba's got a defensive midfielder, but he's definitely a different type of defensive midfielder. He's not as robust. He's not as press resistant. He certainly looks more clumsy in a challenge. Um, and obviously Moa is not, he's got energy, but he's not a, an industry kind of energy like Jason Malumbi. He's more of a, I mean, it's well documented. He's a little bit more of a progressive player. He's a little bit more of a, he probably leans more towards a 10 than a six. Um, Romain Sawyers. Yeah, I think that's probably been quite generous to Alex Moa there, to be honest. But in that mould, perhaps, um, and so when those substitutions come on, but I, I'm with you as both of you, well, you've both said there that I, I don't know really what the expectation of these people who are kind of saying, I don't understand why it's taking your kushu off. If that sports scientist who whoever's in his team in the background there is saying, if your kushlu is doing 90 minutes a game and his output, you're going to get, you're going to lose him for at least eight games this season at some point through muscle fatigue or injury. Corbin has to take that advice on board, especially in a game state like you've just described, where you're clearly comfortably winning against 10 men. Um, so I kind of agree with the in-game decision. It's like you say, Joe, if anything, it probably, it doesn't put a spotlight on Corbin's in-game management or problem-solving ability. It shines a spotlight on our recruitment and our lack of depth, as you've rightly described. I think that kind of probably will lead us quite nicely into our transfer talk. Obviously, we've only got a few days and our Zoom call's running out of time again, but we'll do a few minutes on this before we start up a new call. It's on, what, Friday evening? Thursday evening? The 31st? Which day is that? Thursday. Friday. Friday. 11pm on Friday. Very good. So, as, um, as is custom for me, I shall be getting a KFC and watching transfer deadline day unfold. It used to be that you were on the message boards and refreshing news now. As it currently stands, there aren't many rumours floating around at all about the Albion, and it, it, it doesn't promise to be an overly exciting transfer deadline day. Many people, um, Joe Chapman was on the Albion Analytics podcast the other day describing that there should be two bodies coming in at the very, very least. And I think Corbyn and co are expecting there to be a couple of players coming in at the moment. I think they're going to have to come from left field or we'll just hit like Jeremy Sarmiento just suddenly emerged. Even Josh Madger kind of out of nowhere materialized. They're definitely going to be players that 
on on the radar. I guess our conversation then is where do you think we need to target in terms of improvements of squad now? Idealistically, there'd be two players in every position, but where do you think we're we're most needing help this for this campaign at least? Uh, for me, I would say right back uh, is we haven't got much cover there. To be fair, um, Matty Phillips can cover there, but you don't like we've mentioned before. We don't want him playing everywhere. His best positions on the wing, left wing, um, or right wing. Uh, you know, crossing over. Um, and Furlong, yeah, he's been a great servant, but he's an average Championship right winger, or right wing back, or right back, whatever you want to call him. Um, and I think we could do some something better, uh, you know, or give him some competition around that with some youngster, maybe someone from abroad. I think that would be, for me, would really brighten up our uh, side. And I think it would help Jed Wallace out, to be honest, as well. I think he'd get a lot more help uh, with having Furlong on his toes for his position. Um, I think there's other... Uh, Alex, what do you, do you think? Um, I tend to agree with you on Furlong, but I think Furlong, he does have that threat from a, a Furlong throw, doesn't he? Um, mm. Which is, I think, at the moment, keeping him in the team. Oh, uh, he's, I mean, it's it's such a good threat. I mean, if we could replace him with uh, a, a decent right back with a good throw as well, um, you know, I'd snap the Randolph. Um, well, that wouldn't be very clever, but... Um, <laughs> Do one arm. yeah. <laughs> shot, put from it, shot put it in yeah. but um, yeah apart from a, like a right back I'd like to see a, a central defender perhaps a young one coming through um, to join Taylor some, maybe somebody that would complement Taylor Caleb Taylor's game so look into the future and then I would love like an attacking player like a Dennis Bergkamp um, type player who can play like the swift role but also play up top on their own is Dennis Bergkamp not available this season then? No, he's he's too busy um, with his uh, Dutch aquascapes. Oh, very good. Um, well, I, I think the thing for me about... I, I think I probably tend to agree, especially with the Darnell Furlong conversation. I think Steph, mine and Alex's fellow Woodman Corner Ultra, was going to come onto the podcast uh, today, but she has she's unable to get on. But she had a a, a furlong rant for us, uh, and Dad, who, my dad, who's at the game with us, and Joe's dad was at the game with us, and he he was kind of calling out furlong. Do you know what I mean? How terrible a game he had, and I, I think you're right, Joe, as well. I think it hurts Wallace's game how weak furlong is. I think he's very aware of his own limitations and so many occasions in that game where he didn't move the ball down the right-hand side and then failed to do much with it. But then those times when he did cross it, he hit the Smethwick end both times. So I think he's very aware and, and does play the ball back a lot. And he does seem to be a bit of a weak link. But as you rightly said, Alex, I think Corbran would pick him even with competition because of how threatening that set piece is. We're going to just take a little bit break and then we'll carry on our, our warm-hearted conversation about Darnell Furlong. 
Right, we're back from our little break. We started talking about transfer deadline day, but ended up talking about Darnell Furlong, which isn't a problem at all. And just a, a final few thoughts about Darnell Furlong. And now that's why people tune in, is to listen to kind of the unpicking and unweaving of the the enigma that is Darnell Furlong. I know he's a bit of a magnet for criticism at the Albion. As I said, my dad was hammering him the whole way through um, on Saturday. What tends to happen in games I've noticed, and I think it's deliberate, it's a definite pattern of play that Corbin's looking to cultivate, is that we bring the ball up the right-hand side, allow their team to shift back, and then we play it back to Semi Ajayi, who can play, spray the ball, switch the ball to the left-hand side. And it caused so many problems for Middlesbrough, and I think it's such a... Uh, like it seems so deliberate, but it's frustrating to watch, and it always just looks like Darnell Furlong's rubbish. And there's probably an element of truth that Darnell Furlong is just not as good, and he's kind of, like you said, he's he's kind of been allowed this right back position with little to no competition for several years now, um, and kind of got by because, as you rightly point, Alex's ability to throw and hurl the ball into the box. I'm almost at a position where it's it's not his fault. He's as weak as he is, but I definitely think we would benefit from some competition there. I just I don't know if Corbin was said you you can pick two spots to strengthen in this window now. Would Darnell Furlong at right back be one of the ones he'd pick? My opinion, he's he he sounds like he wants a left sided centre back fill where Peters is. That's why we were linked to Jake Cooper and such. It also sounds like he just wants another body in the middle of the park. I think, again, that speaks to why TGH was allowed to go. We haven't even spoken about that on this podcast, but why TGH was allowed to walk out the door and why Moet doesn't... Although everyone seemed to be in love with Moet come the end of pre-season, why Moet seems to be back out in the, the dark again. If you could only pick two positions that you think were going to strengthen on deadline day, does that change how you'd answer that question, Joe? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, I think he wants someone, like you said, someone in the defensive uh, left back, probably someone younger than Peters. Someone, I think Peters is probably there for backup really more uh, mm-hmm. than... That's what he had in mind with Peters and signing him on for another year uh, contract. And I think, personally, I think it's a pick about, you know, does he want a midfielder that could be attacking midfielder, you know, around Swift's position? Or does he want someone who could play striker or can come back? I know we've got Josh Madger. But I think he thinks BTA can play on the wing as well. So I think he wants quite a lot of versatility in our strike force and in our attacking players and in our midfielders. I think he wants versatile players that can play a couple of positions because we haven't got the money to have two players for each position. So it's a difficult one, and I think he's in a difficult position, to be honest, because I don't think he's going to please everybody. You know, I don't think he's going to go out and out and get that, you know, another, you know, an out and out quite tall target man striker. I don't think we'll have the ability to get that person. So I just think 
it's a difficult, difficult one. Uh, this transfer window, there's a lot of positions that you want some competition. There's not a lot of positions where I think we can get better in. Uh, to be honest, like Peters is probably and Furlong are probably the best, the pick of the bunch that we can get better in. Maybe a different type of striker for BTA, but I think we've got a good squad of first team players with Sarmiento and Magic off the bench. I think they're your, your major uh, team players, but I just, I just think it's very difficult, and I think a lot of fans will be disappointed if we only get two players in, but if he gets two quality players that add, that could play seven positions, which I think he, he would love. He's sort of signed uh, Matt know. Phillips again twice. He's just <laughs> yeah. basically there's just a laboratory somewhere right now that is cloning Matt Phillips eleven times, and that's what we're going to see on deadline day. This kind of weird kind of spacecraft land and Matt Phillips walk out eleven times. No, yeah, but I just think, uh, yeah, again, it's just I think he will look more than quality in one position. He'll go for a more versatile player who can play in a couple of positions, or he can rotate him. And bring him off the bench to rest the other players. He'll go. Yeah, well, I love how optimistic we're being. Um, you know, it's. I reckon the question should be who. Who do you think will will be selling? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the. But um, you know, my opinion's the same as Joe's, and it's typical on the, the on the debate club that we tend to uh, not really debate stuff and just agree with each other. Um, but yeah, I think a new uh, a new right back or right wing back, and then a, a centre half, um, perhaps to work, you know, um, with Peters uh, to develop, and you know, maybe quite a young young player as well. But um, yeah, I think uh, you know, hopefully we keep hold of everyone, but it's it's a tricky position. Like you say, I think that the it's been well documented and Corbyn himself has come out, hasn't he, said last week that he knew the challenges that were lying ahead for the club. They've been fairly open with him about it, saying that we're in a difficult position. If we didn't get promoted last season, it was going to be very much a tightening of the purse strings and looking to move on whoever, really. And I think ultimately it shows a couple of things really that a lot of our team aren't as desirable to other teams as as perhaps necessary they are for our team a lot of that will probably be to do with age i'd imagine that we've got an aging squad even some of the the higher caliber players you your kush lose wallace swift they're in their late 20s now, approaching their early 30s. Even Shemi Ajayi and players like that are creeping up there in age. Um, so for me, there's we're in a really awkward position. Mark Miles has come out and said that we're no longer in a position where we need to sell before we can bring players in. I think TGH has probably helped that a little bit. What did you... Well, let's move on to that conversation that Alex has just kind of briefly flirted with there which is the outgoing players we'll start off obviously the main one that's gone so far was dara but that's been followed up by another young prospect tgh where where are your heads at with that because obviously we haven't touched base since that happened is that a good move for the club or are you indifferent what, what do you think joe um i just believe in what corbran believes in and he did. corbran did not fancy him 
Uh, I think he fancied him parts last season, but I think TGH, because he's young, didn't let him down, but there was that naivety and, you know, there wasn't that experience in him. And I think Corvan looks to that as something he likes to see in his players. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of shot himself in the foot. I think uh, it even showed, you know, when we lost to Sheffield United away, where he passed the ball back across the goal, which is, we all know, don't pass across your, your goal. And he did it and they intercepted it. And I think Billy Sharp, one of those players, scored. Um, but I don't think it's a loss, to be fair. I think Bristol City have gained something, to be honest. I think he has got quality there. But for our team and under Corbran, he was just going to be stale and just sit on the bench and use up wages. And if that helps us to bring in a player to improve us, I'm definitely down for that. Most people, Al, were upset about the supposed figure that's attached to um, going. Obviously, we know we're so financially cash-strapped at the moment that we kind of got to take money where we can get it. But the fee that's out there is 1.3 million for Gardner Hickman. Did that shock you? Do you think he, he, we, we should have been kind of banking on getting more? And obviously that doesn't necessarily mean that Bristol City are going to buy him, but that's the supposed figure that he's available for at the end of the loan. Is that, is he undervalued, overvalued, rightly valued? Well, let me put, I think Bristol have by far got the best deal. Um, out of the two parties um and i don't know why we've done it alone to buy as well so at the end of the season bristol city will have either got a bargain at 1.3 million or they'll choose not to buy him and send him back because he's no good so that then we've got a player that's no good on our books but i I don't know why we just think keep keep hold of him and continue to develop him because he's obviously a, a prospect and then sell him even if it's in three or four years' time. Uh, I mean, his wages can't be that high um, compared to other players, more senior players. Um, so I was quite shocked and I was displeased. Um, I don't really understand that one, I've got to admit. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of perhaps on the spectrum there, probably lean towards Joe's opinion a little bit more. Um I, I don't think he's done anything really to make him like a twenty million pound player or anything at the Albion. I, I think he's just a very mid-level Championship player, possibly. If everything goes to plan for Taylor Garden Hickman in his career, I think that would be a good ceiling for him. Personally, gone now. I think I saw I saw a stat. Uh, I think it was Albion Analytics. Um, I definitely recommend checking them out if you if you get a chance on Twitter. But he, I think he said it. Something, something like in 18 starts, he's got 10 man-of-the-match performances or something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. I think he's got so much potential. He's got a lovely touch, and he can, he can his passing range is, is really good as well. Um, I, the, I, just, I just think Bristol City have got a steal there, I really do. They have, they have got a steal, but the potential would have gone under Corbran because he wasn't playing. So even if you keep him in the thingy, he's just devaluing, isn't he? And he would have eventually gone out on loan or... He hasn't been in favour for a lot of uh, managers, so there's something there that is either is an experience, or he doesn't do something right. He's not training right in training, or something like that. And yeah, he's probably worth about one. He's probably worth about that because he's not done anything to show that he's a top championship player. You know, he, I, I for me, that's fine. Yeah, you know, I think we're not going to one... get any. 
We're not yeah, going to get any, anything else because we never get big sign fees, do we? Yeah, on any players. it's definitely that people are also aware that we we can't demand a lot of money at the moment necessarily. People know we need the money, so they're lowballing us with offers. Nobody knowing Albion's position presently was going to offer us five or six million for Taylor Gardner Hickman. I think that would have been pretty wild to be honest and it's been said in other places and I think we've said it on this podcast as well he doesn't seem to have a position he seems to be just decent in a lot of positions he's played at right back right wing central midfield defensive midfield attacking midfield and I think there are just players ahead of him in each one of those positions like, I know we just criticised Darnell Furlong, but there are parts of Darnell Furlong's game that Ka- Taylor Gardner-Hickman just simply cannot offer, and perhaps that is just as simple as the long throw-ins. But let's move on from TGH and talk about the other big possible outgoing, that's Dean Gardner. Now, Al, Al, obviously this one's close to your heart. He's probably one of the only players in the whole team that commands a bit of a fee. Um, and you can imagine the team having to cough up five or six million pounds. Perhaps Albion would be able to get that much. It seems completely wild that we could get that kind of a fee for anyone else on on the books um, outside of maybe Josh Griffiths. What, even though you love Dean Garner, do you think it's if we can get the money for him, is it like a no-brainer to let him go and revive his career somewhere else, perhaps in the Premier League? I think I, I think he's worth closer to ten million. Um, I mean, you, knowing the album, we'll probably sell him for two point five or something crazy like that. But um, I, I, I would love to see Dean Garner and Sarmiento in the same team because I think they would just play off each other. I think they're on the similar wavelength where they have kind of they're just ultra skillful. Uh, it's it's all about the cage football, isn't it? Um, um, I, I think, yeah, I would be very disappointed if we were to sell him because uh, I think he's an, again he's an exciting talent, and I think we need to develop him a bit and then sell him or just keep him um, or try and recoup some of the money we paid for him. I think he was about fifteen mil, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Something like that. I think we're doing Garner. He's probably, has he got two years left of his contract? He signed a five-year contract, didn't he? And I don't think we paid that full amount. I think a lot of those were add-ons with him doing well and blah-de-blah. But um, with Dean Garner, for me, I would get rid of him because he's starting to become an injury-prone player and he's hardly playing any games. And when he when he is fit, Corbran doesn't bring him on that much. Again, I think he doesn't fit into Corbran's mould. And if we're going to keep Corbran, I think that's the person we need to keep for longer than Dean Garner is Corbran. And if he's not in his mould and we can get something around the five to six minutes and recoup some of the losses we've got from him because really since we signed him, he hasn't really done much, has he? He is exciting. But for him coming off the bench, I think we need that. I'd rather, you know, six or, you know, if he comes on 15 times this season off the bench... I'd rather six million for that because I don't mm. think he's going to score a lot of goals for us because he hasn't scored a lot of goals in since he was on loan. So I think most of us uh, we want 
Grady to succeed. I think that's a lot of Albion fans are kind of desperate for him to recapture that early Slavon Bilic form. And I think because of that, a lot of us have got quite a romantic view of Grady Dean Garner and his ability and his his guile and his trickery and such. But the reality of it is, is we just haven't seen it in nearly three years now. We're approaching three years since that Blues game where um, kind of the last game in which I really remember him being dramatically um, kind of that that player that just was arguably one of the most dangerous players in the championship that season. Since then, to say we've seen glimpses of it feels generous. We've seen glimpses of what looked like a shadow of that player. We've never seen that player since. I've never seen anyone like it. I don't know whether that injury changed him. A lot of people talk about this homesickness and him wanting to be moved back to London and never really wanting to come to the Albion in the first place. And he does genuinely look like a bit of a lost soul. That's the only way I can describe it. He doesn't seem happy at the Albion. I think he wants it to work, as all professionals rightly would. But I don't think that he's in a a good place mentally for him to recapture that form. And I think if we can get six, I think I imagine, I don't know how the finances of football deals work, but I'd imagine that when we get a fee for him, the, the other team would be assuming the kind of last repayments as well, or that they'd be offset somehow because, and then if you think we're getting five or six million, it's probably closer to 10 million, Alex, what you're describing. I think if we, if the fee quoted is something like two or three million, it probably still rounds up to about seven or eight because of how much money we still owe on him. So I think there'll be some club in the Premiership that think, that see that same Twitter highlights compilation, that see all the stats that are still there, the defensive work rate, the 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 pressures and all of the other things that, like kind of the analytics throw up. I think there'll be plenty of suitors out there for Grady Dean Garner. And I think at this stage where his career is with the Albion, we'd be really foolish to turn down the money, especially if that money would be basically the war chest to go into transfer deadline day. There were a few rumours about Dean Garner, but they seem to have dried up a little bit over the last week or so. In fact, I, I'm shocked really at the, the rumour mill about at the moment. There really is no one being linked to Albion at the moment at all. I, I mean, I've been scrolling through Twitter before the podcast. Um, even Dude doesn't seem to have anything on the horizon, really. Um, we all seem to be a little bit in the dark and in the fog about what it's going to bring. I'm no doubt we will sign someone, um, but I don't. I don't think you could even guess really at this stage who it's going to be. Do you want to guess? Burkamp, Dennis Burkamp, Thierry Henry, and Robert Perez, and Freddie yeah. Youngberg. What a player! Oh yes, what players indeed! So it closes at. 11pm on Friday. Will you guys be watching it? Will you be indulging in a little transfer deadline day activity? I'll be doing jury service. So. Oh, really? Very good. Are you allowed to say that? Or do I have to, like, now? Well, no, I can be doing jury too. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, if Joe gets you on his case, just, you know, look favourably on the podcast and he'll look favourably on you. 
Um, <laughs> it's. I live very close to the training ground, and I usually like to do a couple of drive-bys um, on, on transfer deadline day to assess the activity at the club. I remember one day where they were talking about constantly needing to go back to the Hawthorns for some breaking news. And I was like, and you know what Sky Sports and Jim White are like. They kept delaying it to the next advert, to the next advert, to the next advert. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I, instead of ordering in KFC, I drove to get my KFC. And I drove past the bottom of the, the gates. And I could see the Sky Sports fan parked up there. And they were eating a bag of chips. And I knew it was all lies. I saw through the mirage, you know, like I saw the wizard behind the curtain and it was all smoke and mirrors, um, which was very disappointing. But deadline that very often is disappointing as an Albion fan. Let's just wrap up. We've got a couple of points here. Action for Albion. Uh, targeting the Huddersfield game as a kind of a major protest. They're going to be handing out, I think there's 10,000 leaflets that they've printed for this game that they want people to hold up during the 12th minute of the game and it says something like for sale full sale full sale takeover required um it's been a bit quiet on the action for albion front in terms of in the stadium i haven't really noticed a, a visible or audible kind of anti-lie there's been a couple of chants um but because the games have been so frantic and frenetic, it, it, people's attentions have very much been on the field. Um, I know the off-the-field discussion is still looms large, um, but do you think this is kind of a little bit of a, a real litmus test kind of moment for uh, where people are at with Action for Albion and everything on Saturday? Yeah, I think this is a, a new thing they've tried, and I think this is kind of going towards the, you know, your standard approach of protesting, handing things out, you know, of a picket line type of thing, isn't it? Uh, bringing in leaflets, holding them off. So hopefully this works because I think this is more visual. I think visual works. I think shine a light will work in the, uh, the winter. You know, if they want to, I think bring that back in the winter where it's a bit darker, it will work. Those type of things will work. But yeah, hopefully, you know, they're doing a good job. That's all you can say. They're doing a good job. They've been speaking to the right people, speaking to all the right governance around football around you know councils and government so all the best to them and hopefully people get behind it to be honest because it is right we need a full sale now because it's just getting to the the horrible horror of that horrible word starting with a if we don't do anything this uh, season Al, any thoughts? I don't know. I, th I think Joe put it very well. I would just recommend that everyone uh, follows Action for Albion on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, they've even got a website. Uh, just have a read through. Um, I think it's important that we all get behind mm -hmm. um, what you know the excellent work that they're doing. Yeah, I think this one. I have to say, I've, uh, the shine of light and. They've kind of seemed to have lost their impact, and again, maybe it's just a, a kind of seasonal thing. But this one does seem to—I can see this one in the ground being quite impressive, and I think that's what you want it to be. You want it to be visible on a at a TV screen, really, don't you? And I think as long as they target it well and the right stands, the the TV facing stands, it could be quite a powerful moment, really. Um, 
ten thousand. I don't know if that's optimistic, a bit pessimistic. I don't I don't really know much about that, but I feel like it could be a really, really kind of powerful demonstration. So as these boys have said, try and get behind it. Don't just drop it on the floor when you get it. Like let's kind of get together and really kind of push to to save the club basically at this point really it looks like on the field we're doing well but off the field is still the same crisis before um the season started so well that's the Huddersfield game anyway obviously Huddersfield struggling massively this season they are 23rd and really lost two drawn one uh, lost three sorry and drawn one really not in a good place um obviously we're coming into this in like huge favorites we're on such an amazing run of form in terms of the our home form and people rightly tipping us to kind of crush um Huddersfield this week what do you guys make of this game are you are you just expecting us to to roll them over or, or are they going to come apart the bus and we'll struggle what do you anticipate I don't like us being confident because when we ever we're on this, uh, the Hawthorns debate club, we do well and we're really confident. We put a prediction to win. It just doesn't come through. Horribly so, backfires. Yeah, it's horrible. But I do think we're going to beat them. I think uh, if we play anything like what we played uh, for the majority of Middlesbrough, even in the bad points, we, we're going to beat Huddersfield, to be honest, because Middlesbrough even though they're not playing well, they're a good team. They've got a good set of players, a good manager. I just think we'll have too much for them. There's the gelling, like we've discussed throughout the whole podcast. We're gelling better, more training sessions. Confidence is flying through the team. Confidence is flying through the uh, the um, defence as well. So I think we will concede less than we have in the last couple We'll have 17 new players from transfer deadline day. <laughs> you know, all that confidence. Um, no, I just think we'll have too much for them. But I still think we will concede. But I think we'll win 3-1. And I think, again, it'll be shared around the team, these goals. I think I'm happy that a defender gets a goal every game. So, so let's it's give Peter's it, turn. Peter's turn this time. Nice. Then I think it's going to be an OK Yukushlu or Malumbi goal from the centre midfielders. I think BTA will get another one. Nice. like that. Al, perhaps what? I can give you some insights before you give your prediction. We're currently averaging 2.3 goals per game. Um, they haven't won a match in five games, but they also haven't kept a clean sheet in five games. But we go much better than that. We haven't kept a clean sheet in 14 matches. So make of that what you will and shed a light on what you think this game will transpire like. Thank you, Jamie. It sounds like you've been in my research corner. I hope you've left it as it was. And um, I reckon we'll thrash Huddersfield 4-0. I just look at our home record. Um, You know, I think the West Bromwich Albion Twitter account posted it on... um, just before the game against Middlesbrough. And I think in the last 18 games, we've drawn, I think, four, lost two, something mm-hmm. like that. So I think that's quite formidable. Um, and I, I don't, I can't see us losing Touchwood. Um, but, you know, I think uh, 
our, our defenders, Ajoy and Kipre, you know, a couple of beautiful finishes the last couple of games, uh, like striker finishes. I think it's uh, it's Ajoy's turn. I think they're going to alternate each week. Oh, um, yes. So, yeah, 4-0. Very good. I think there's also, for me, I don't know how important this really is, but Corbin, the old revenge factor, the look what you could have won, where he wants to really, uh, in other games, perhaps he does go with a more casual, genteel approach. But in this game where he really wants to put the sword to Huddersfield and really send a message um, with a strong home performance. I'm going to go with the same goal difference as Alex but with us conceding as well because I do think we're we're prone we're, we're likely to let one through slip through the net and so I say 5-1 to West Bromwich Albion I think Matt Phillips BTA Josh Madger wraps up the scoring I think um who else will get one John Swift and Jed Wallace 5-1 easy money and so when we are inevitably discussing a loss next week, um, it'll be even more. That would be the most goals we've definitely scored at the start of the season, surely. We just seem to be scoring goals for fun at the moment. It's yeah. absolutely bonkers. The the record, what is it? We were saying, me and Alex, where there was all these statistics coming out that under Corbyn, we've only lost two games at home. And like I think that's 12 games in a row we've won now. My wife's only had a season ticket since midway through like Corbin's first few games. And so she's only ever seen Albion lose twice. This is absolutely bonkers, really. Like, it's an amazing place to go. Right, we'll wrap it up there. I think it's looking like it's been probably quite a long podcast. But hey-ho, that's how sometimes things go in the debate club when we shut the doors and we put the fire on and we just start waxing lyrical about our beloved club. So... All that remains for me to say is a huge thank you to you, Alex Collins. Cheers. A huge thank you to you, Joseph Clay. Cheers. Happy transfer deadline day, everyone. Hope it goes as swimmingly as imaginable. Thank you for listening this week, and we'll see you next week. Sweet dreams.